Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. That's the word of the cross this week here on the Ponder a New podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Myles, and welcome. We often unpack and ponder new ancient stories of Scripture. And this Lent, these weeks leading up to Easter in 2024, we're considering the words of the cross. And today we're going to reflect on sort of the opposite first of what Jesus is, is talking about here. He's bringing people together. So we're going to reflect on loneliness, the way it's pervasive in our culture, but ultimately bend back towards what the cross and these words teach us, show us, reveal to us about how Jesus is creating community, getting at a core reason for me, and I hope for you too, of, of why we are followers of Jesus. So that, Father, I do. Tell me love is real. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that's what the soldiers did. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then Jesus said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. With these words, Jesus creates a new relationship. He creates, in many ways, the community of the cross here. These are really important words, and I want to unpack them with you and, and think about why this is so important that Jesus is doing this. And in some ways, why only Jesus can do this? So what's, what's going on? What is at stake here um, for us as humans, for us as, as Christians? What's the issue? What's the problem? In 2023, the U.S. Surgeon General released a report about a new epidemic, a new crisis, and I think we all roll our eyes a little bit at this point around the constant health warnings. But this one was one that was really fascinating. It was for loneliness, the epidemic of loneliness and isolation. And it goes over in many statistics what's happened, that the amount of hours that people spend alone has risen, that the kind of number of hours with friends has decreased. And the Surgeon General is writing about this because it is leading to negative health, physical and mental health outcomes, that there's all sorts of other concurrent problems with the rise of loneliness and isolation. And the, the Surgeon General 
lists many um, sort of drivers or realities here. And I think it's worth us considering what's, what's really going on and getting to the, the core of the issue. And part of what is happening in the report acknowledges this, is that COVID accelerated some trends. That the for there's been a, a long-standing pattern here, but COVID just really, for a certain percentage of people, really just drew them um, more into themselves. We were really taught to fear other people in social situations. There's so many of us got in the habit of whether it was church or going to the movie theater, of just streaming at home. Again, what once would have been social activities become private in-the-house activities. Um, but the report makes it clear that this problem precedes COVID. So we can't blame this simply on the pandemic. All of these trends existed. And another culprit, an easy culprit, would be the rise of social media and the ways in which that has, um, and the internet, in which that has often kind of encouraged, seduced uh, people into uh, sort of various ways of spending their time on their screens instead of with other people. And I think that's pretty clear, although, you know, again, there are some really beautiful things that happen through the internet and social media in terms of bringing people together. So I don't, I can't say that's all negative, but even if we said as a whole that social media is, and, and our devices are making us lose human contact, even if you went there, you, it turns out that this problem precedes that. In, in 2000, there was an article, actually a book, called Bowling Alone, and it was talking about how there used to be bowling leagues in our country, and now there are not. And it's really more deeply not just about bowling, but about the decline of Elks and Rotary and Lions Clubs and these various organizations that, that would sort of bind us together as Americans that really even go back to like Tocqueville and this and this famous Frenchman who visits America in the 20th century, 19th century and kind of comments on American sort of habitual um, desire to create sort of what we call nonprofits today, but societies, groups, organizations. So there is this decline then in this social capital that goes back. Well, maybe to get it, I think what's what's going on is in... In uh, 1970, my congregation where I currently served moved buildings. And the biggest difference between the two buildings, well, was, was there was a parking lot and there was what we called a narthex, a lobby area. And in the former church, there was almost no narthex, no lobby. And that's because the people that went to church lived together. And so they didn't need a place to socialize after church or before church because they had, well, they had probably seen each other yesterday at the grocery store, Friday at work. And many of them were going to go over to their sister's houses on Sunday because they were related in some way, shape, or form or another. But by the mid-1900s, that wasn't the case. The car had given us mobility, and that meant that suddenly people were able to not necessarily go to church in the community they live. And we have this reality in which our work friends, our church friends, our high school friends, our college friends our online friends, our kids' soccer friends, they all become sort of sort of these circles that aren't necessarily overlapping. We have fragmented friend groups. And then again, with this mobility in our culture, you 
there was a funeral that I did for the person, the pastor's wife, who built uh, this, this sanctuary, led that building project, you know, those decades ago. But it was a strange funeral because we, well, it actually wasn't strange. It's becoming quite typical. And then we had people coming in from all of these different directions, these different time zones. And even one of the sons was overseas in Korea and we had to wait for him to get back. And it just points out that all these people with the economic potential and also reality of our global economy and transportation and communication that we no longer live in the communities where we grew up. And I think about, you know, 100 years ago, 1924, let's say somebody in my family died and I went to the grocery store. How many people would stop me and know what I've been through? But now I think about all those people that fly in for the funerals that I do and fly back. They fly back to a world in which nobody knows. They go to the grocery store and nobody knows that they're grieving the death of somebody super important in their lives. So we, we have been blessed with this mobility, but it, it often means that, again, we're, we're not as rooted. And you think then about the American Republic that we're based on in to, individualism. I mean, life, liberty, and the pursuit of property is the first draft. So we have this very individualistic culture. The Bill of Rights is all about individual rights. And so you have this individualistic culture And what's restraining it for a long time is rootedness in communities as well as religious communities. So you basically have sort of, you know, your neighbors down the street, civic organizations and church organizations, which are kind of restraining sort of the the individualist extreme stream of American thinking. And you take, uh, you know, again, that rootedness in communities away. And then you, in the last generation, sort of move a full quarter of our society that used to belong to churches that doesn't anymore. And what do you get? You get a lot of loneliness. Well, it turns out, though, this isn't simply an American thing. In the Bible, in the book of Genesis, the first problem, the first thing that is not good isn't actually human sin. A lot of times we think that it's, it's human sinfulness and disobedience But actually, the first thing that God says is not good is that Adam is alone. Loneliness is the primal problem in the Bible. And what that means then is that the cross and resurrection of Jesus, which brings salvation, somehow are going to have to repair the loneliness that we're experiencing. And then if you look even to the book of Revelation, the end of Revelation, and throughout the book, the scenes of heaven are scenes of people who are coming together across age, across time, across cultures to be together and to be healed, the healing of the nations around Jesus Christ. So we know that the end game is life together, and the sort of primal challenge is we're lonely, and then you add a bunch of technology that really allows us to kind of go astray, and we're sort of caught now in this middle where we have this primal desire for, co- for connection, this hope that one day we will, but this reality now where we're sort of living in an in-between time. We have this huge problem of loneliness as Americans and most fundamentally as humans. And what I want to offer, though, is that Jesus isn't simply creating 
community here for his mother and the disciple John. But I believe that the, the cross and the work of Jesus is not just in the eschaton, that means the last things, but really here on earth that Jesus enables us to, to live with each other and in community. And this really gets at fundamentally why I'm a Christian, because I believe that, that it's the power of the gospel, the power of the cross, the power of Jesus that enables us to have life together. And I want to um, get at ultimately the specific image um, that we have here in, in John's gospel uh, and the word of the cross here. But I, I'll just offer another point, and that is that uh, one of the words of Jesus that we went over a few weeks ago is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And I think forgiveness is so crucial in relationships. Uh, if anybody's going to be in a long-term relationship, and I don't just mean romantic or even uh, marriage, but even sibling, parent-child, these relationships that last, uh, inevitably somebody's going to stumble. And there needs to be forgiveness. And I think our Christian faith um, opens us up to forgiving others because we know that we have been forgiven ourselves. You know, and there's a, a way in which our society teaches tolerance as a way for us to, to get along. And secular tolerance is really um, sort of about the lowest common denominator, about saying, okay, whatever you want to do is fine. You do you and I'll do me. And as long as we don't blow each other up, we're really fine. But Christian tolerance isn't actually saying that all moral and ethical codes are equal. Christian tolerance is saying, okay, what you're doing, I don't agree with, but I know that even by my own standards, I don't live up to them, and therefore I need to live with, with grace for you. So I want to, again, there's a whole thing we could talk about forgiveness and, and why forgiveness is so essential for, for community. But I want to talk about two other things specifically here related to the, this image in John's gospel. And, and the first is that Jesus calls the people into this new relationship. You know, woman, your son, son, your mother. And w when Jesus calls them, it's really this embodiment of these teachings of Jesus where Jesus has called us to care for one another. And that it's really not at some level a choice about whether we want to love our neighbor. This is really the will of God that we would do this in our lives. And that at its best, we can view each other, especially I think within um, sort of our circle of friends and, and hopefully our spouse, our parents, our children, um, our families, that we can begin to view each other as a gift like that Jesus literally hands these two people to each other. And that, again, we can, we can view the other as a gift and in some ways also a task, not in a way that another human becomes our Pygmalion, our, sort of, um, our statue to sort of mold and shape how we want, but a task to, to love this other person. And again, I think within the parent-child and then the marriage, this becomes the, the strongest examples of these we have. But in general, the way in which the other people in the cross and in the heart of Jesus, people are restored to what they should be 
and that is that people become for us in our lives a gift. Like, what does this look like to view other people who are in your midst as a gift to you? A sacrament of God, right? An instrument of God's mercy and grace in your life. Uh, perhaps even to be sand that chafes against you and causes you to repent. And, and what does it look like to view them as a task? Not in, the, in a bad way, but simply as, as somebody whom you're called to, to love. And so the word of the cross for us uh, I think is an invitation then to hear God claiming other people in our lives. Behold your child, behold your neighbor, behold your coworker, behold who now in Christ becomes your brother or your sister. And who are the, the people, again, bring them in our lives as both a gift and, and a calling and a calling not just to work on them or to minister to them, but really to minister with them. And that God has called us all as a human family into this, this creative purpose that he sent out in Genesis to be his sentinels, to be his image bearers, to be his tenders of the garden in this world. And so we, I think we can sort of find a transcendent purpose in caring and loving for those who are in this world and in our lives. But the last thing that I, I want to get at in terms of, I think, really how Christianity enables community uh, and really enables life together and, and helps us overcome loneliness is that when you date somebody in the beginning, you have to be impressive. But it turns out that after that, the glue within a relationship is all about vulnerability, is all about sharing your hopes and your hearts, your hurts, your wounds with them. And like the people that we're really close to, it's again, what, what, what makes a marriage work and where marriages break down into affairs is where that intimacy is no longer happening. And I don't simply mean sexual intimacy, but it's always, it always the first to break down an emotional intimacy where the people stop sharing with each other what's really going on, the heart, the hurts and the hopes that people are experiencing. But again, sharing of that is really hard. And a lot of us live in a world in which we are trained by social media, by lots of other things to not let people in, to not show people that we're desperately wounded and hurting. And I live in a town that's, that's you know, kind of rising middle towards middle upper class. And people there tend to be pretty proud. And nobody ever wants to admit that life is crazy. And so people go to all sorts of lengths to kind of cover that up. But really, the, the center of the Christian life is a traumatic event. The center is a cross on which Jesus died. It's a story of tragic injustice and brutality of the state. It's a life that didn't work out the way that anybody there besides Jesus wanted it to. And even then, you could argue that Jesus didn't really want it to be this way at some level. So there's, there's this profound sense that the center of the the story is injustice, is hurt, is suffering, is sin, is estrangement, is death. And I think what this means then for us as Christians is that the community of the cross is one where we can be intimate in the sense of we can really share our lives and we can acknowledge that there is pain. We can do that because we know that there's resurrection and that gives us strength then and courage to actually acknowledge 
but also because Jesus himself has been there. So I want to say that this whole story of death and resurrection, to me, frees us up to acknowledge the junk in our lives, to bring it to God, and then hopefully, ideally, to find others where we can be truly ourselves and say, hey, this is what's going on in my heart. I know I've seen this in many cases in the congregation where I serve, and and I hope you've seen examples of it as well in your life. So again, the world has a problem with loneliness, but I'm not worried about that in the sense, well, for the sake of the church, in the short term, it may mean that people seem less interested in church, but I think in the long run, I just meet so many people who are hungry hungry for real community, real fellowship. And I believe that that's the fellowship that it requires the forgiveness of the cross. It requires the call to love sacrificially our neighbor of the cross. And finally, it requires that that vulnerability that the story of the cross and the empty tomb uh, give us the courage to have with each other.